And then I was actually doing like a happy hour Zoom call with my lab mates when I got a phone call from my doctor. And basically over the phone, she said that there's a mass in your chest that's shown up on the chest X-ray. It's very big. And she said it indicates that it is either a lymphoma or a thymoma. But you know, she says lymphoma and that's very shocking and surprising, very concerning. Hello, listeners. I'm Annie. And I'm Q. Welcoming you to another episode of Grad Gamut, a podcast that delves into the lesser-known dimensions of graduate student life. bringing masters and PhD students from all different backgrounds to share what it is really like to commit to several years of graduate education to pursue a dream. We will celebrate the highs, share the challenges, and come together as a graduate student community. Most importantly, we will amplify real graduate student stories to inform advocacy and policy making. Hi, I'm Brittany. I'm uh, 26 years old. I'm a PhD candidate studying cancer biology, and this is my COVID story, I guess. Understandably, Brittany would like to keep some ambiguity in this episode, so throughout we will just be referring to her as Brittany, and when needed, that she is a PhD student doing research at a large public research one institution in the Midwest. Brittany's story came to us through our friends from SAGE, the Student Advocates for Graduate Education Coalition. We're so grateful to the leadership there for connecting us with Brittany. Right from the start of our time together, Brittany began teaching us about her research work in cancer biology and how it all began for her in high school. Personal stuff with me in 10th grade was observing zebrafish development. So zebrafish develop in a clear egg. You can watch the different stages as they grow. And it takes a couple of days, really, for them to hatch out and start swimming on their own. But it's a really cool process. Being able to when we think of animals in a lab, we often picture lab rats and lab mice or maybe even larger animals like a monkey as needed subjects to better understand the human body. Not necessarily so as Brittany enlightened us. Fish are really great for studying cancer and studying neuroblastoma specifically because you can really easily see where the genes are being expressed, where the proteins are that you're interested in, and you can very take a, a bunch of complicated things and make it very simple in the fish. Why are things easier to see in a fish? A big strength of zebrafish is that they're transparent. Transparent. The fact that their tiny zebrafish are easy to breed, have a fast development cycle, and are transparent are key reasons why they've become so essential in cancer research. The zebrafish is a small tropical fish that originates from the Ganges River in India. But what's remarkable about these fairly simple organisms is that they're really genetically very similar to us. A lot of the work that we do is in their offspring, in their larvae, and these are transparent. And so it's very easy for us to be able to see them under the microscope, being able to label cells or label genes with fluorescent markers. As a cancer researcher, the main tool that I use for studying liver cancer is the zebrafish. Zebrafish, like humans and mice, can get liver cancer. And the liver cancers that zebrafish get are similar both in appearance and genetically to human liver cancers. 
There are a number of different things that we can do with the zebrafish. We can introduce human cancer-causing genes into the zebrafish. We can take human cancer cells from patients and transplant those into the zebrafish. And when we do that, we see those cells grow and divide and spread much like the way they do in humans. And in all of those cases, we can take those fish and expose them to drugs by adding drugs actually just to the water where these little uh, baby zebrafish, where these larvae are, and then we can look at drug responses. Now that we have a better understanding of why zebrafish are just so cool, let's go back to the work that Brittany is doing. One reason why zebrafish are such a great model, I think, for studying you know human diseases, you can look at genetics. And so it's really easy to, for example, you can mutate a specific gene and you can do that really easily in a zebrafish. And it takes very few steps. I'm not going to get into all the steps because that's kind of outside the scope, but you can do it with very few steps and zebrafish mature pretty quickly. So you can create a zebrafish, it's called a zebrafish line. So you create this new mutation in a fish and then it's, you know, um, within a couple months, you can mate that fish with another fish that you've also created the same mutation in, and you can establish like a good line to study that in. Once Brittany creates these lines, she has a very interesting way to see the changes happening in the zebrafish families. One way of telling that your gene of interest is in there is you can connect it to fluorescent marker, or like a fluorescent gene. What happens next is pretty cool. And then you can check it later and you can see if it's glowing, essentially. You get these really cool patterns where, if it's worked, <laughs> your gene of interest should be expressing, and then you can see things light up. Much like how she describes the zebrafish, Brittany's life lit up in high school when she learned about science, and she was hooked. She started checking the lab daily. Being able to go in on my own during like my lunch times and go check on my babies, as I was calling them, was really huge for me for really getting really excited about science. Brittany continued following her passion in undergraduate school. Specifically in the cancer that I was studying before, we were studying neuroblastoma, which is a pediatric cancer. And what we were looking at is very specific genes and specific pathways that are involved in sort of the establishment of this cancer. And following her undergraduate study, she decided graduate school would be the right path for her, specifically a PhD in cancer biology. Going into graduate school here, I was just really, you know, I want to continue working in research. I think that's a really exciting area, and I really enjoy being in lab all the time and doing experiments and having, you know, sometimes you have to redo stuff over and over and over, and I just find that a lot of fun. Brittany had found her home, her niche, and she loved the lab and she loved her PhD graduate work. Brittany, on the other hand, like many of us, was not prepared for COVID-19. Uh, people in charge of research at my university put out, you know, guidance that we should all shut down our labs completely. What did the grad students do with this news? Everyone in my lab went around and, you know, we all work with cells so they, you know, you can freeze the cells down and then you can use them again later. So a lot of freezing down cells and cleaning out chemicals and it just, it was really unclear what was going to happen next. For Brittany and her teammates, COVID as a graduate student is a very stressful disruption to otherwise pretty consistent research that's able to take place. 
Understandably then, as Brittany was trying to advance in her PhD work and continue her research, COVID added a new layer of stress. What was kind of happening during quarantine is that, you know, I had all this other, you know, anxiety around school and stuff, and then there's anxiety around COVID, you know, and I think I, like, left the apartment for the first time after, like, three weeks of being at home, and I didn't have a mask, and I had to have a mask to go into the grocery store, and I put on, like, a bandana, and I just completely was overwhelmed as soon as I walked in there. And I was feeling weird things that I couldn't tell if it was anxiety or if it was COVID, and that was making me more anxious. The stress that Brittany is talking about is extremely relatable. However, for Brittany, who started feeling symptoms with so many factors going around the world around her, she very quickly began to think, maybe I have COVID. I had some chest tightness going on, and it didn't hurt to breathe, but it was uncomfortable. But it was kind of like, is this COVID? And I called, uh, they had like a hotline for employees to call and, you know, describe their symptoms and then either get referred for testing or not referred. So I called once and I sort of explained what was going on and they didn't let me get tested because I was, I didn't have a fever. I didn't have any of the other symptoms associated with COVID. I just had this weird chest stuff. Unable to get tested for COVID, but with COVID on everyone's mind, symptoms continued and Brittany was not sure what was going on. She tried again to get tested. A week later, I had this really sharp pain in my back on the left side, and that made it really uncomfortable to like sit and move around, and, and it also kind of hurt to breathe, but it was still okay, and I called again, and again, they wouldn't let me get tested because no fever, no anything like that. And then I finally actually got like a cold for a weekend, and I had a fever, and I called, and they let me get tested, and that test came back negative. Brittany came back with a negative COVID test but that did not leave her with any answers to some of her strange, ongoing, and growing symptoms. I started feeling this pain in my neck, and I sometimes get pain like that after having had a cold. Brittany brushed off the new neck pain as something that she was used to having after a cold. Pain wasn't going away, and then one night I realized that the left side of my neck was really swollen, and like I couldn't see my collarbone at all. Like I would try to push it forward, and I couldn't see it. And that was actually the week of my research in progress presentation. At this point, Brittany is getting really worried, and she goes ahead and makes a telemedicine appointment with her doctor. And she could tell over, you know, HIPAA-compliant Zoom that my neck was really swollen. And actually, on the day of my talk, I put on, like, a blouse with cap sleeves, so it's, like, tighter around your arm. And I felt, I could feel that my left arm, it was tighter on my left arm than it was on my right arm. So my left arm was also swollen. And then she realized it was more than just swollen. And it was actually a slightly different color than my right arm. So it was very, it was very concerning. And I had this telehealth appointment with her. She ordered blood work and a chest x-ray, which I went and had done that day. Brittany went and had the test done and then proceeded with her daily life. This brings us all the way back to our opening clip. And then I was actually doing like a happy hour Zoom call with my lab mates when I got a phone call from my doctor. And basically over the phone, she said that there's a mass in your chest that's shown up on the chest x-ray. It's very big. And she said it indicates that it is either a lymphoma or a thymoma. But, you know, she says lymphoma, and that's very shocking and surprising. Very concerning. Very concerning. And a concern that Brittany knew all too well. For reasons that will be made clear very shortly, the first thing Brittany did when she heard the news from her doctor was call her mom. Yeah, I got off the call with my doctor and I called my mom and told her what was going on. And like I said, my mom was a nurse, so she's, you know, 
she actually worked in oncology and actually the interesting part of this, so there's a couple of sort of interesting ironies. My mom actually had Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was 19 years old, when she was an undergrad. And so she, of course, has this experience and knows what that's like. The call with her mom is very reassuring, and they take a step back to realize they don't really know much yet. And at this point, we don't know what kind of lymphoma it is. We just know it's possibly lymphoma or possibly something else. It's a chest x-ray at this point. We really don't know what's going on. And I felt very fine, except for this random cold and these other weird chest symptoms that I had that I couldn't figure out what it was. And I think maybe that's related to the tumor, but but I'm not sure. It's hard to tell in hindsight what's what. At this point, Brittany is confused, as we all would be. No one expects to receive a cancer diagnosis, especially not during COVID, in your 20s. My doctor ordered a CT scan, which I went and had the next, like the following Monday. And that they found, like they really were able to get a better look at the chest mass and figure out what it is. So it's it's basically just like a very large tumor in the left side of my chest that was wrapped around really important structures in there. So typically they don't, they don't do surgery to remove lymphomas. Lymphomas respond really well to chemo, and so they don't need to do surgery. But this is kind of a situation where like even if it were a tumor they would normally have surgically removed, they couldn't have done it because it was just involved in too many important things in my chest. As the gravity of Brittany's situation becomes clear, the doctors and nurses begin to ask a lot more questions. Everyone's asking me if I have trouble breathing, if I have any chest pains, and the answer is usually no, and and the reason why they're asking is because it's like pressing on my left lung, and part of like my left lung was pretty crushed and deflated, and it's just totally nuts, and I, and I yeah, I was I'm feeling really okay. <laughs> which is just the wild part. The bad news didn't stop there. An ultrasound revealed that Brittany had a blood clot. I had an ultrasound scheduled where they really got better a better look at the clot, and I was kind of looking at the images as they were taking them and asking questions, and it looks like it was a really big clot. And so once my doctor got all of that information from the ultrasound, she called me. And at that point, it was after 5 p.m., so she couldn't order blood work or anything like that in labs, and she had said, at this point, she's like, you can wait and get blood work done tomorrow but this is a really big clot and the issue is that it could if any of it breaks off it can travel to your lung and that's a really big medical issue that's like actually like sort of life-threatening right now it's not life-threatening it could be very easily with this new development Brittany had to decide quickly what to do next she advised what she thought would be the best option for me was for me to go to the emergency room and get admitted to the hospital that way and get blood work done in the emergency room and then get started on an anticoagulant which basically prevents your blood from clotting Brittany follows the advice of her doctor and decides to call the ambulance and go to the hospital there she realizes how different it is to go to the hospital during a global pandemic. I had to get tested for COVID again. They wouldn't admit me to the hospital until I'd been tested for it and I tested negative. So I was finally admitted to the hospital. And so, you know, the whole time I'm in the ER, I have a mask on and I'm waiting and waiting. Brittany keeps waiting and is eventually admitted to the hospital around 4 a.m. She finds it's nearly impossible to get any rest. Had me on an IV anticoagulant, so like intravenous anticoagulant. So I'm hooked up to a machine that's pumping this into my bloodstream and... You know, it's like the machine's loud, and it's it's just impossible to get any sleep in a hospital, I've learned. I'm 
I went to the ER. My mom actually flew out to stay with me uh, and she was getting in that night and I was gonna go pick her up at the airport, but here I am taking myself to the ER. <laughs> I had my boyfriend go pick her up and then I actually didn't come home from the hospital for nine days after that. The hospital was a really busy place, swarming with machines and doctors and nurses. Yet the experience as a whole was very lonely for someone during COVID-19. Right now, they're not allowing any visitors in the hospital. So I'm also in the hospital by myself getting all this information and have my mom on speakerphone for certain things or FaceTime her about stuff. And We first interviewed Brittany in June, so much of this timescape is talking about May, when nobody was allowed to visit. You're not allowed to have any visitors, so it's just, it was really hard. And uh, yeah, and it's just, it, it was really difficult being in that situation and not being able to see anyone. You know, and my mom had just gotten there, and I don't get to see her for like nine days. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just really hard. Keep in mind, Brittany has just been diagnosed with cancer. Her mom has flown across the country to be with her and can't be physically with her, but is only able to be on a speakerphone. Everything about Brittany's situation is compounding to make for a very isolating and scary experience. Another added difficulty came from the fact that the hospital was very busy, and it was hard at times to get in touch with a doctor, a nurse, or to even know what was going on. It was hard to get in touch with the doctors. Sometimes, you know, I would ask, like, is hematology oncology coming by today? And my nurse would say, I don't know, we can ask. And then they wouldn't come by, and I had no idea what was going on. Days go by, and Brittany goes through many tests, including a biopsy, at which point she's able to work with her mom, who previously had cancer and was an oncology nurse, to start to piece together clues. She's sort of getting clues through the things that I'm telling her that people are telling me. So I text her, hey, someone came and did an echo, which is where they use ultrasound to look at your heart and figure out if your heart is functioning well. And she knows from that, she's like, okay, so they're probably going to start chemo with this drug because one of the chemo drugs that they give you can cause heart damage. And so they need to know that your heart is healthy enough to start this. And then they ordered a pulmonary function test, which is lung function. And I tell my mom that, and from that she knows, okay, it's probably this drug. <laughs> so she has this knowledge that I don't have. After piecing together clues, it's pretty clear that Brittany knows that she has cancer. Soon, this fear is confirmed. Finally, I was supposed to get moved to a different part of the hospital where the nurses are trained to administer chemo. Because at this point, we know it's Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they told me it was stage two. There's four stages. Up until this point, Brittany has stayed pretty cool-headed, all things considered. However, the time comes for her to go get her first chemo, and more drama happens. They were going to take me to a different part of the hospital. And on that day, when I was supposed to be moved, and I could finally get my first chemo, the entire communication system in the hospital crashed. So no one is able to access any paging systems. The phones are not working. They're doing all the announcements over like the PA system so the whole hospital can hear them. And, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like I've been in the hospital at this point a whole week. I've been waiting. I waited through a three-day weekend, been waiting so long. And that was like probably when I had my first meltdown because I was just, I was like, I'm never getting out of here. <laughs> so after a week in the hospital, and learning that she has stage 2 lymphoma, Brittany reaches a fever pitch when the communication systems go down and she's unable to reach that final point where she can get her chemo treatment started. 
This meltdown was compounded by the fact that she's in the hospital during a global pandemic, and yet again, this impacts the kind of care Brittany is able to receive. Yeah, my nurse, the other part that's not great about COVID is that it, it totally breaks out any sort of human connection you can have, like any sort of physical connection. So I'm having this meltdown and the nurse there can't touch me. She can't come over, you know, and like give me a hug or, you know, offer any sort of physical, you know, like solace or anything like that. And so that's also really hard too, because I've been tested for COVID, but the, the nurse hasn't necessarily. And so, you know, so that's also just like another part of it too, is not only are you really isolated, but you're also physically isolated. You can't have any touch from anyone. After some more complications, Brittany is finally taken to the oncology unit where she is able to receive her first chemo. I had my first chemo in the hospital. Actual chemo infusion takes three hours. Usually you're allowed to have a visitor during that time, but right now because of COVID, you're not allowed to have a visitor. And it's kind of intense because you're sitting there and then the nurse who's administering your chemo has to go put on like an extra gown and gloves, like two pairs of gloves. And, and they're being all very cautious about everything. And then they go and they pump this all directly into you. <laughs> you're kind of like, wait a second, like, this is serious stuff. Like, so it, it it's very intense drugs and it's, I found it's like a really big exercise in trust. There's no way for me to tell that this is working. In fact, it's making me feel a lot worse because I felt fine. It's making me feel a lot worse. And, you know, my hair is falling out and everything. And um, my vincristin, which is the, that drug that we're trying to find an alternative for in my lab. At this point, we're going to pause. Here is where we see... Brittany's two lives merge, her life as a cancer biologist researcher and the work that she does as a graduate student with now her own personal experience on the other end as a cancer patient receiving the very drug that her lab is working on. She has much to share on this topic, as you will soon see, and a lot to relay about a change in perspective coming from a scientist about scientific medical research. The lab that I work in, we study cell division. Brittany's lab studies cell division. Now she's about to get into some pretty deep scientific terms, but we wanted to include them because it really helps give a bigger picture of what her work is like and how it's going to relate to some of the chemo drugs that she is currently taking. If you end up with incorrect numbers and incorrect amounts of genetic information, you can have, you know, you can develop diseases like cancer and you can also just have just generally all kinds of things go wrong if you have the incorrect amount of, inf of information. What's required during cell division then is sort of a physical alignment of these chromosomes along something called the mitotic spindle equator. We had asked Brittany what a mitotic spindle equator was. Here's what she let us know. So the mitotic spindle is a structure that forms using these sort of thread-like structures called microtubules and they literally connect different parts of the cell. So during just regular when your cell is doing normal stuff and it's not actively dividing. It has these microtubule networks that are used to transport things throughout the cell. My lab then studies microtubule dynamics. 
As we can see here, Brittany really knows her stuff. She has been studying cancer treatment and doing cancer biological research for many years now. So we had her discuss a little bit more about what her lab does in relation to cancer treatment. One of the main processes that very broad cancer therapeutics target in general is the process of cell division because cancer cells tend to divide more frequently than regular cells, any other cells in your body, with some exceptions, but they tend to divide more quickly. And so if you inhibit cell division, you can more effectively, you're going to kill off more cancer cells than you are going to kill off other cells. With great ease, Brittany can still discuss at length how important the cell division process is and how her beloved zebrafish are helping she as one of the researchers develop new and better ways of treating cancer. However, one of the real points of revelation throughout the conversation with Brittany is how humbling of an experience being diagnosed with cancer was and how she has gained a new perspective as a cancer patient that she didn't have before as a scientific researcher and how her worlds are merging. It's very interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a very, yeah, it's a very different side to, it's adding a very different perspective for me because there's the whole perspective of being a patient in a hospital. And I think that a lot of times if you've never experienced that, you don't think about that ever. This is such an extraordinary circumstance where Brittany is both a cancer patient as a cancer researcher and also having to take the very drug that her research is being used to help mitigate side effects that she herself is experiencing. It causes neurotoxicity, basically, because microtubules are important for neurons. If you inhibit microtubule dynamics in a neuron, that can cause damage to the neuron, and then you end up with Nerve damage, essentially, is what it is. And so people who are getting vincristin for cancer treatment can get, it's called peripheral neuropathy, which is basically just sort of like loss of sensation in like your toes and your hands. And so I've had some peripheral neuropathy develop in my feet. And so that's kind of one of the ironies is that this drug that my thesis work is sort of inspired by finding an alternative for <laughs> is causing a side effect for me um, that we're trying to avoid, you know, ideally. Moving away from the really scientific explanations, as Brittany describes learning a new point of view, the point of view of a patient, in the case of cancer treatment, she makes a really compelling analogy. You have one problem, and instead of directly targeting that one problem, you're just like smashing the entire object, right? And, and so it's just interesting that we have all this really sophisticated scientific research going on, but our actual applications are still very primitive. The imagery that Brittany gives of having this really specific problem, trying to take care of the cancer cells, but that our only treatments available to us right now are more like smashing an entire object against the wall, is just such a great visual to help not just our listeners today understand, but something that she's now able to share with her fellow uh, science PhD students and cancer biology researchers that can help influence the way that they approach their work. One of my friends asked me, like, what is chemo even like? Because they don't know, and none of us know, because we haven't been through that, and that's not something that we talk about, really, because we're not studying the like, really clinical parts of cancer treatment. We're studying very specific scientific things. In cancer biology and in many sciences where we, where we think about human disease, unless you're working sort of directly with patients, you're much more so on the sciences side of things where you're very specific and you're looking at something very, very particular. And in my case, it's 
pretty removed from any sort of immediate human applications. Brittany is no longer removed from experience, and she views this very humbling experience in her own words as something that helps her now re-envision the goals of cancer research and something that she is able to share with her fellow researchers and others in the field to help us understand how far we still have to go. I think also humbling to think about what are we actually putting people through when they're going through cancer therapy. We have all these goals in cancer biology research. You know, we want to find cures for things. We want to find better therapeutics. We want to understand how this works so we can prevent it. But it really is sort of humbling because you see how far we still have to go. And it's just kind of mind-blowing in a way that these therapies that I'm on are really just very broad. And they they inhibit very very, very important processes in like cell biology, but they're not very elegant, I guess I would put it. And so it's just very interesting stepping out of being very deeply in a specific area of science. Brittany is a bridge, and she is doing a great job connecting the day-to-day experiences of a cancer patient back to her own lab. As we mentioned before, Brittany goes to a pretty large public research one institution in the Midwest. And we were wondering, you know, For the graduate student piece of this experience, how hard was it to have this kind of disruption within the global disruption of the pandemic? Luckily, Brittany had nothing but support from her advisor, and she named this as extremely key to making the whole experience much more doable. And he was, you know, very concerned and very understanding. And he's been really, really understanding and accommodating and really sort of saying, you know, you take care of yourself right now and get through this. And if there's stuff you want to work on, that's that's great. You can try to get stuff done, but really don't worry about it too much. Acts of flexibility like this can make such a big difference in an individual's life. So we just wanted to take a moment and pause and thank Brittany's advisor, wherever he is, for being one of the flexible, understanding advisors that we hope everyone can hold up as a best practice. In addition, Brittany's institution was very supportive in the fact that the graduate student assistantship package, it's the form of graduate student employment that many of us are are well aware of, is one that includes health insurance. And she doesn't have to pay anything for her health insurance plan. And this relieved so much potential stress throughout this entire ordeal for Brittany. I don't know how they pulled this off, but my health insurance is actually really comprehensive. Logged in and looked at my healthcare costs, and I run up almost $100,000, probably more than $100,000 at this point in hospital bills through the nine days of hospitalization and then now chemo. And I haven't paid, had to pay any of that. My insurance has been covering everything. And so I'm just incredibly, you know, counting my blessings. When it comes to health insurance, Brittany was extremely fortunate and continues to be. We wanted to highlight this aspect of Brittany's story for all the graduate students out there listening. Keep in mind that Brittany attends a large Research One public, and this is still possible. If you're listening to this story and you're someone who is hoping that health insurance situations can improve at your university, we hope that Brittany's story helps support that advocacy because it is doable at a very prestigious, high-caliber university in the United States that is a public, state-funded institution.
As we wrapped up our time together with Brittany and we expressed extreme gratitude for her time and her willingness to share her story, she had a couple of other noteworthy mentions. One was an ask for universities to consider the immunocompromised members of the community as they create return to campus plans during the global pandemic. She also mentioned a, a need to consider who takes public transportation with, with that bigger picture in mind. Is the public transportation the ways that one gets to campus going to be safe for those who are dealing with uh, immunocompromised situations? We had this wonderful talk with Brittany over the summer, and we are happy to provide an update from her. So Brittany wrote us uh, just a couple of weeks ago in October, and she let us know that she has successfully finished her chemotherapy sessions. She is looking forward to, but has not yet been able to get back to her lab, but she is just very eager to return to campus when it is safe for her to do so and to return to her research. She is really also very hopeful that in January when she has to take some more tests that her remission could be confirmed at that time. So we are sending Brittany all the good vibes and hopes that that she really does receive that confirmation of remission and a big thank you to her. Until next time, we would like to thank all of the graduate students and friends who help make Grad Gamut possible. Our audio master, Stephen Hennessy, a recent graduate student from Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Hossein Haeri, our sound designer and current graduate student at UMass. Thank you as well to the Virginia Audio Collective through the University of Virginia and to everyone at Student Advocates for Graduate Education, SAGE, and the National Association of Graduate and Professional Students, NAGPS, for helping us connect with amazing graduate students to share their stories. Please listen to more graduate student stories on Grad Gamut. Like and subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GradGamut. And if you're a graduate student with a story to share, contact us via our website, gradgamut.com. Our website is also where you can learn more about the graduate students featured in all the episodes.